0: Well, day, folks, and welcome to episode number seven of Playing Crazy Down Under, the podcast that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher over here. And I'm Grant McCarron over here. And oh boy, mate, what an episode we've got this week. Oh, uh, it rocks. Totally rocks. Now, we were going to do our usual thing where we were going to put some news and comment and uh, give you all our two cents on the way we take the aviation news this week, but we came up with something better, Grant.
1: Oh yeah, we thought we'd give you a break from our opinionated selves sort of but we'll let somebody else provide most of the content today but don't worry for those of you who want our opinions and attitudes and a little bit of news we'll be back in a day or two with a, a proper episode but uh, for now we wanted to let a uh, bit of an Australian aviation rock star have a go yes we were
0: we were very fortunate and very privileged to be able to spend some time with Matt Hall of Matt Hall racing now uh, for those of you who aren't familiar shame.
1: Um, shame shame
0: shame for a start Matt Hall is a 18-year uh, veteran of the Air Force and uh, he was as a fighter pilot, he's, uh, well... Done it all, mate, didn't he? Really, and now he's now he's flying on the uh, Red Bull Air Race circuit this year in his rookie season, and he's already really shaken him up there. So
1: yeah, he's fifth on the he's fifth on the rankings chart. He's uh, as as Steve said, he's flying for the Royal Australian Air Force. Just to clarify that, he's also flying with the United States Air Force on exchange. Yeah, he's flying with Red Bull, and he's flying almost anything he can get his hands on. So uh, an awesome guy to talk to about flying.
0: Now Grant and I pre-recorded this interview what about an hour ago. We finished, and uh, I can tell you we're both still just buzzing from. Uh, We were hoping to get maybe half an hour from Matt, and uh, the interview goes for just about an hour. So, yeah, we're just thrilled. We're jumping up and down. We're really excited. Uh, It's a a great interview, so uh, sit back and enjoy. Yeah, go for it. there's anybody in the world of aviation who perhaps could be said to have done it all our next guest would surely be considered to be one such person he's an 18 year veteran of the royal australian air force He was a combat fighter pilot flying fa-18 hornets he spent time in the united states flying f-15 eagles and more recently was one of australia's most senior combat fighter pilot instructors he's also a keen aerobatics pilot and has recently left the air force to become a pilot on the red bull air race circuit in his rookie season he's already shaking up the more experienced hands and is currently sitting fifth on the the table and we're absolutely thrilled that he could spend a little bit of time with us here on the podcast tonight it's matt hall g'day matt and thanks for joining us
2: thank you very much
0: and uh you might start by telling us matt where we're talking to you from we're not actually sure what part of the planet you're on at the moment
2: um, well i'm actually uh living in a in a rented house in austria um for a couple of months just just trying to avoid jet lag in between uh the european season of the of the races here so uh, i'm uh, as i'm talking to you i'm actually standing in a lost in our house looking uh, across to some Alps with some snow in it believe it or not in, in the middle of summer here.
0: Oh okay, must be uh, wonderful scenery. Yeah, it's,
2: uh, it's pretty good and then, in fact I went for a flight through the Alps yesterday in my race plane and it was uh, absolutely stunning I've got to tell you.
0: Okay cool, um, so we'll, we'll touch on the Red Bull stuff uh, in a minute um, but I wonder if um, we could we could sort of touch on, on, on how you got into flying and um, we, we've been looking at all your Wikipedia pages and your your, um, your website and, and that sort of stuff. It looks like you've been flying since just about you could walk.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I think was probably around about then, or maybe even before. Uh, my, I've got a family history of flying, so um, my dad, my dad is a uh, general aviation pilot, and basically he he flew for enjoyment on weekends, uh, mainly at a gliding airfield up at uh, Walkworth in the Hunter Valley, um, in New South Wales. And he flew both the gliders and the uh, the tow aircraft, which was an Oster at the time. And oh, wow. I just used to, um, I, I, yeah, he had to do something with uh, with the boy when he was. Um, Going to do his hobby on the weekend, so I just got put in the seat and sit there, be quiet, and <laughs> fine. So I, just, I just grew up looking out the window of planes.
1: Cool, that's excellent. Uh, now, a question I've got is uh, I, well, based on what you've just said and, and what we've read of you, I take it you're someone who just wants to get in the air whenever possible, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I must admit that since I've, um, since I've left the military, I, I don't fly as much as I used to. Uh, when, I was, when I was in the military, I flew almost every day, and then on the weekends, then I'd go and uh, do my aerobatic flying and, and uh, those types of things. Whereas now, because um, uh, my flying is, is very uh, purposeful, um, it's very like the only thing I'm doing when I'm flying a race plane now is, is all about really just trying to, um, trying to practice about getting it through a track as fast as I can, uh, I've, I've backed off my flying a little bit just so that I can really be clear in my mind that the flying... Uh, that's my profession at the moment, uh, but I am I am actually planning on getting back into some uh, sport aviation uh, over the summer in uh, in Australia when I'm when I'm back at home because I must admit that uh, I do find that I'm lacking my hobby at the moment. And my hobby is actually still flying, and uh, I haven't done enough of it lately.
0: So you'll be hopefully hitting a couple of local air shows.
2: Yeah, well that's uh, hopefully some local air shows back home, um, and also doing some uh, some just some flying for my own enjoyment. Uh, probably get back into gliding, which was where I really where it all started off for me and i just just get back into um you know the, the love of um taking off on an adventure you're not really knowing where the thermals will take you and uh, and just you know flying for as long and as far as you can uh, on a on an adventure it's just one of the one of the romantic things about flying i think
1: yeah i i agree I've, I've done some gliding and i know what you mean it's 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 a wonderful thing to you just have to have trust in your ground crew but otherwise it's all really good <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, or you have trust in yourself that you're not going to need a ground crew
1: <laughs> yeah I never got that far from the uh, airport <laughs> uh, um, a question for you, you know, given you've flown as you said hang gliders, gliders, you've uh, jumped out of planes you've got a, um, a few planes back here what are some of the types of aircraft you've flown before the RAF and which were your favourites back then?
2: Um, before I joined the Air Force um, I, I started off in, in sailplanes, gliders and uh, and, you know, learned on what a lot of people do on the, on the blank. Who oh, are you there? High-performance gliders. Um, and it, it, was, it was actually quite, um, quite good. I then got into uh, flying ultralights and then into hang gliders before moving into um, GA aircraft. Um, nice. the, um, so, yeah, I got into GA flying um, and, you know, flying the Cessnas and um, it started aerobatics in the Citabria. Uh, into a poor knee for doing glider towing, this is all when I'm still uh, seventeen or eighteen years old, and then that's um, that's when I then joined uh, the military, and uh, it all sort of took off from there, so to speak.
0: So, could you take us perhaps, Matt, through the process of of going into the uh, to the Air Force and and how you uh, qualified for pilot selection? How that that process is obviously very very uh, complex and very involved. Um, and uh, yeah. just wonder. Uh, how, how that all came about.
2: Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, I, I didn't actually grow up uh, wanting to be a military pilot. I, I, um, I knew I wanted to be a, a pilot for a job and that that was going to be my profession. I, I didn't know whether I was going to be a crop... You know, at one stage, I wanted to be a crop duster pilot and at one stage, I wanted to be an airline pilot and then at one stage, I wanted to just do joy flights around Ayers Rock. I came up with a business plan when I was about 13 that I was going to buy a plane and <laughs> just take people for joy flights <laughs> around Ayers Rock. So I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just knew I was going to do it. Uh, And then um, when I got my pilot's license, I started taking friends flying in Cessnas to uh, get some hours up. And um, and then I realized that the type of flying I I enjoyed the most was actually when I was flying the single-seat Pawnee uh, towing gliders. And and that was actually the the, the launch, so that I I would actually go and find thermals for the gliders. And that was a challenge. And then... Coming down as well it was just a you know, great deal of fun, uh, just to see how quickly you could get on the ground after the glider left, and and I, I realised that was the adventurous flying that I that I that I really really liked. So um, that's when I considered that maybe the military is uh, yeah is the uh, the spot for me. That yeah, definitely everything that involves flying in the military has uh, has uh, a lot of adventure in it. So um, I put my application in. And I put it in as a a direct entry, which means that uh, I wasn't going to go to uh, Adfer or university first. I was going to go straight in to uh, officer training for about uh, three months and then start under pilot training. And and, and luckily for me, that was uh, my first attempt. I was successful in that. It basically uh, all happened in around about a six month process from putting in my initial application to getting an invitation to come and do some initial aptitude tests and some initial psychology tests and um, medicals and then progressing through to uh, what's called a board where you sit in front of um, a panel of three three to four senior military uh, people including pilots and doctors and psychologists and they uh, they just bombard you with questions to see if your attitude is correct for being in the military because uh, it is a fairly specific thing and making sure that you have the, you know, the correct uh, physical and mental attributes that are required to uh, you know, to do what you've got to do if required in the military. So it, uh, it all worked out. So within six months, I found myself uh, um, down in Sydney uh, signing on the dotted line to um, start my new life.
0: Wow. And, and was the intention always to fly fast jets or did you consider perhaps the Hercules or the 707s at the time, something like that?
2: Uh, I think every teenager who's uh, deciding to join the Air Force uh, as a pilot is, um, is basically wanting to, to fly the jets, um, that, uh, I guess. We, I I
0: get, think, I, sorry, sorry, I guess I was going to say, at, 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 back at that time, we'd all seen Top Gun, I guess, so we were all sort of hyped up on that, I guess.
2: Well, that's right. Top Gun had been <laughs> only been out about you near know, three, maybe three to four years before I joined the military, and I grew up in Newcastle, so um, yeah. I was always seeing, hmm. yeah, from Mirages. Um, then we got the F eighteen, and I'd see them flying around, and and to me, it was a uh, yeah, it wasn't actually like people flew them; they were like. Uh, it was like watching something from Star Wars. Uh, there were there were there were fantastic flying machines, and it, it was hard to actually put um, a human being in those aircraft. They were just you know these magical flying machines that would you'd see zipping along at near supersonic speeds, etc. So um, I, I did join, thinking it would be absolutely fantastic to fly the fighters, and that's where my motivation was. But um, I did also have the realistic um, understanding that. Uh, if you know if it all didn't work out, uh, you know, it it was some of it was out of my control. and uh, flying any aircraft in the military is still going to be you know, a fantastic experience. and I was, you know, my some of my best mates don't fly fighters, um, but they uh, they have a ball and and they're they were always getting into me as a fighter pilot, you know saying that how many times they've been overseas and how many times they've been doing uh, real operations with uh, um, you know special service uh, soldiers jumping out the back and those sorts of things and and uh, they used to say I was always on a 50 uh, 50 mile bungee that I'd take off from Williamtown, go and fight within 50 miles of the base for uh, 20 or 30 minutes, and come home and high five each other.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like
2: that. But uh, we'd get into each other like that. So uh, yeah, basically for me, uh, definitely I wanted to fly fighters, and I was fortunate enough to go straight into fighters of pilot squad. But uh, anything that, that uh, I would have ended up flying in the military was, was still going to be uh, that adventurous sort of flying that I was, uh, that I was uh, looking for.
0: So what was the initial training platform back then? Were they still using the Mackie Jets at that time or whether you, uh, I guess the Hawks hadn't come on the scene at that stage?
2: No, when I went through, uh, started off in the CT4s down at Point Cook. Um, so I did about uh, six, you know, five months training, I think it was, down down uh, at Melbourne then and then went over to Pierce um, and started, uh, finished my pilot training on the PC9 and uh, that was fairly, it you was know, probably only... Um, They were probably only about 12 months uh, into training on the PC-9 when I turned up, and we still didn't have them all. We are still getting new aircraft turning up on the flight line when I was there doing my PC-9 training. Um, That then got me through to my my graduation with my wings, and uh, because then I was streamed to uh, fast jets, and at that point it was either going to be f 111s or F-18s. It wasn't nominated. Uh, I then went on to the Mackie and flew the Mackie, uh, around both in Perth and at uh, Williamtown at Newcastle, until the, until I was selected to go onto the F18, uh, at which time I did a six month conversion onto the Hornet, and um, then I was often running in the squadron uh, with a big with a big bloning, uh, curve ahead of me as a as a fighter pilot.
0: So did you spend um, most of your time like uh, uh, the squadrons up in Darwin, I guess, or were you based sort of around Williamtown that sort of area?
2: I was, I was based uh, almost exclusively for my career uh, at Williamtown. It was kind of ironic, actually. I, but uh, when I was joining the air force, so one of the things I thought was, you know, regardless of how this goes, you know, it's, what a life adventure I'm going to join the air force and see the world. And <laughs> straight after training, I was posted back to uh, Newcastle, and I spent almost all of my career <laughs> based out of Newcastle. So um, my, my my fighter career really, uh, you know, I did my Hornet conversion, then I did uh, three tours back to back at uh, Williamtown, uh, including um, uh, doing our Top Gun uh, course and then instructing at the school and uh, and our Top Gun uh, school there uh, called uh, 2OCU. Uh, I then uh, spent three years living in America, and that was when I was flying the F-15E Strike Eagle, which was an absolutely fantastic experience. Um, and then uh, from that, I <laughs> once again posted back to Williamtown to uh, for another... Um, I think another three postings at Williamtown before um, resigning at uh, the start of this year.
0: So, yeah, talking about your time over there on, your, on the exchange program that you did with the uh, United States Air Force, and how does the two aircraft, I'm fascinated to know, the two aircraft, the Hornet and the Eagle, uh, how are they, are they similar aircraft to fly from a pilot's perspective? Are they, are they, how are they The similar and how are they different?
2: Um, as far as flying a modern-day fighter is concerned, they, uh, they are very similar. Um, they're use you know, similar weapon systems, um, you know, similar similar setup in the engines and the flight controls. Um, it, but if you get into the details, they are they are quite different. Uh, you know if you look at just the flying qualities of the aircraft, um, the the eagle's got uh, almost basically a delta wing uh, with no leading edge um, devices and no smart uh, flats that are moving on the wing. So it's basically a a solid wing uh, with a tailplane, a flying tailplane, uh, whereas hmm. the hornet on the other side has got uh, very defined wings uh, with leading edge flaps that it move automatically and trailing edge flaps that move automatically. Uh, so it's a very fluid wing for uh, for generating uh, for generating lift at slow speed. Um, so the hornet is a, is a, a fantastic plane for slow speed maneuvering and fighting, whereas the eagle is a fantastic aircraft for high speed flight um, and uh, and and doing those types of things um but uh, the eagle was uh you know eagle's a fantastic plane i really enjoyed flying it and uh, you know i feel privileged as in only a handful of australians that have actually had the chance to to do a conversion onto the f-15 and and fly it uh, for a number of years so it's a it it is a a very satisfying thing to have achieved
1: excellent uh i've I've got to ask a question about air-to-air refueling because the 18 uses the um the probe and drogue over here whereas uh, the fifteen uses the boom. Uh, what's what would you say is the difference between the two in terms of the types of flying? Is it very similar?
2: Um, I I think it's one of those things. It's uh, it, it's what you grew up with. Um, I I prefer the uh, the drogue, um, uh, which is what the Hornet has, uh, and you know, that's that's what I learned to do when I was uh, quite a young pilot. Um, and I think you know that the flow rates are slower on that system. Um, but what you can do is it, it's, it's a little bit harder to get engaged because uh, the basket is you know, affected by bow waves and turbulence and all those sorts of things. Um, but uh, once you're in, now you have, actually have flexibility to relax a little bit. So a lot of concentration you get in the basket, but then once you're in, you're attached to the hose and you just have to stay within a certain area and you can actually have a little bit of a relax. Uh, with the um, with the boom, what I found there was... Um, Especially with the F-15 and say a, a KC-135, which is quite a, it's actually quite a small air-to-air refueler. Um, you know, it's only probably 50% bigger than a loaded up F-15. So yeah. you'd be moving, mm. um, you know, at night time, especially. I did a lot of refueling uh, in, in Iraq, where I was I loaded up with a lot of bombs, a lot of tanks, and you're moving in under this unlit aircraft at night time. Um, you know, only probably, you know, less than 10 feet from its tail. And you're moving, as you're moving underneath it, your aircraft's bow wave affects the tanker, and then it starts to pitch and and porpoise, and, and so you're fo- trying to follow it through this pitch and porpoise. Um, the boomer gets the boom into you, so you you just fly into a certain position, and he then drives the boom into your refueling receptacle. So it's easier to get in in that regard. But then once you're in, you've got a very tight window, and you have to you have to stay very focused for um, for that three or four minutes while you're getting fuel. So. Uh, it's probably more of a mental thing for me that I was used to uh, the opposite side where it was 110% focus for a 30-second window, and then about 80% focus for the next uh, five or six minutes. Whereas the boom was, um, yeah, you know, pretty good focus for the first uh, for the first minute, and then 100% focus for the next two to three minutes. And uh, it was actually it was a challenge for me to get my head around that at times, especially. Uh, as I said, when it was nighttime, I was full of fuel and bombs and missiles, and I got a tanker that's got all these lights off because he doesn't want to get shot
0: at. <laughs> wow! <laughs> now, Matt, we just wanted to touch briefly. When you were with the um, USAF, you did some missions in Iraq, um, and you got. It says in your bio here that you you received decorations from the United States Air Force as well as our Air Force. Was was that pertaining, I guess, to that campaign or just generally service um, yeah, in general? Was,
2: yeah, that was uh, that was directly to. Um, I got I, got, uh, I think three. Um, well, it's not. I think I did get three medals with the USAF, uh, mm-hmm. and um, the uh, two of them specifically relate to relate to uh, specific missions I did, um, where there was um, some um, there was some people under fire, and I assisted in um, uh, uh, keeping them you know, safe at the time and uh, basically you know, saving the day. So, um, and and one of them particularly involved me getting shot at while I was doing it as well. So. Uh, yeah, they are things I I, I am proud of achieving. Um, that you know, I was able to for sure to, to help people out, and um, and who you knows, possibly keep them alive, um, while I was also at the time under fire. So, uh, yeah, it was an interesting time, that's for sure.
0: Pretty intense. And how did how do our American friends? And now I actually lived in the US myself for a couple of years, so I probably know the answer to this. But how did the Americans cope with having an Australian fighter pilot there showing them how it really should be done?
2: They were really good, actually. Uh, initially, um, initially, there's always uh, doubt, um, but yeah, I, I think um, most, most Australians who, are, who uh, hold themselves up professionally, um, they, uh, they do very well. Um, that's why I think we're you know, generally good sportsmen because we, we concentrate on our own efforts and we concentrate on just getting the job done and what's, what's happening right here, right now. We don't, we don't dwell on the past or promote the future. Um, and uh, they really understood that. That uh, when I turned up, there was, I didn't uh, talk about what I have done. I don't talk, didn't talk about what I wanted to achieve. I just got on with what I was doing. And um, and then uh, that generally involved doing a pretty good job. And um, and then anyone that actually decided that they uh, they thought they were better than me uh, would just go out on a training mission. And, and typically, I could uh, you know clean the floor with them a little bit and um, make you know, make them a little bit more humble. And uh, yeah, a couple of instances of that occurs, and all of a sudden you've got a huge amount of respect from uh, everybody. Especially if you just uh, shrug your shoulders and go, yeah, that's uh, yeah, no big deal, and you keep going.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, uh, fighter pilots are always portrayed in movies and what have you as you know being really sort of uh, the alpha male, you know, really out there, egotistical personalities. But but I guess that surely that wouldn't be the case in real life for most people. I would I would think they're just very very focused people for the most part.
2: Yeah. There, there's there has got to be a little bit of um, cocky, uh, cocky arrogance um, that I, I used to try and explain to my students that um, I wanted confidence but not arrogance. And uh, and and the difference was really uh, confidence is knowing you can do it, and arrogance is talking about you can doing it. You can
3: do yeah. it. Yeah. Um,
2: mm. And the uh, yeah, there's no point. There's no point us in the military training our our combat uh, personnel. Uh, with the attitude that you know, you, you've got to be lucky to win. Um, you've, got to, you've got to instill confidence in them that uh, you're training them to be the best and if they do what's required and they study and work hard and, and practice and become the best, they will always win. So that has to be brained in them. But we also need to make sure that they don't start thinking they can just do it all the time uh, or do it their own way because then the arrogance comes in, and then things can become very dangerous. Because we're working, you know, we're working in a dangerous environment with uh, with yeah, you know, very expensive equipment that's uh, you know really is operating on the you know, the edge of um, survivability uh, a lot of the time. And if people start thinking that it's uh, you know that's just the normal environment to operate and everything's easy, uh, we we'll, we will have accidents and um, you know uh, people will be killed. So it, it's very important that it's a, we manage that fine line, and that's why we have. Uh, a good leaders in the military who are able to to read personalities and uh nurture the people that need a little bit of encouragement but with potential and uh, and and with no uncertain terms uh restrain uh, people that uh, are overstepping the line with their um, their confidence
1: yeah understood that's it's a major factor of building the team and as you said getting everyone uh together and and able to do what they've got to do without going over that edge
2: exactly yeah yeah, yeah. and um and, and what I found is that uh, most air force pilots, were, you know, they're almost they're almost duplicates of me. Yeah, you know? um, we all had the same um, perfectionist attitude. Almost, we all wanted to be the best, um, and we 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 almost become like professional sportsmen, where you just you look into yourself and decide how you can do things, and you have to self motivate. Uh, you know, there's there's no room for people that need. Need a, you know, a fire lit under them. It has to be people that are self uh, self motivated to go out there and do it. And um, you end up having some uh, some lifelong you know, mates that are you know, just fantastic people and do you know, that will actually die for you, which is uh, it's hard to find that in any other environment in the world. That's for sure.
0: There was a really fascinating documentary I think SBS made it only a couple of years ago called Real Top Guns, and it focused on a uh, a group of pilots going through uh, fighter training yep. uh, with the RAF. And um, I found that fascinating, particularly the young fellow who didn't quite make the grade. And I, I believe he ended up flying surveillance a uh, PC-9s or something over in the West, I think. And, um, you know, it, although he was really, really just not quite there. You know, he was trying his best, but, it, um, you know, you really felt for the guy when he didn't, when he didn't sort of make it through. But the, um, the best thing about it was right at the end when the class had graduated that they still made mention of the classmates that didn't make it through. And um, yeah. there was no no sort of sticking it to them. It was a, it was a, a, still a mutual respect type of thing, which I found you know just to be really a positive thing.
2: Yeah, well, sure. When when we're instructing people to be uh, you know, to achieve these levels, um, it's it's not all about uh, how much, how hard someone works. There, there's natural talent and natural ability mixed in there, um, and you know it doesn't mean if someone can't pass the course, it doesn't have any um, any um, influence on who they are or. Or why they're there, or their, their own personal attributes, or anything like that. It's it's uh, it's really yeah. You know, it, there's been there's rarely been someone that I have failed from a course that was through their attitude. It's always just been that they, they didn't quite make it. And there's no way that you can ever have uh, less than you know 100% respect for people that to go all out, and especially when they know that they may not be going to uh, pass the course, and they continue to keep their head down and work as hard as they can. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that, that deserves a huge amount of respect and, um, and that's very alive in the military. There's, uh, there's never anybody that uh, you know, is laughed at for uh, failing a course, that's for sure. And and they're always given the best opportunities um, post-failure to uh, to continue using all the talents that we've, we've still been nurturing in, uh, along the way.
1: Yeah, well, you've, you've got to be good to even get in, let alone uh, to of, get yeah. all the way through. So that is a major fact that you've got in, let alone passed. But I've, I've got one exactly. last... I've got one last uh, question on the Air Force side of things, both the RAF and the USAF. Uh, mate, I, what was your handle? What was your call sign? <laughs>
2: um, I, uh, I got through pretty unscathed. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, typically, Matty was the most I you know, got called. Uh, there, there was a time where I was being called RAVs for a while there, which uh, stood for requires adult supervision because I was, a, I was a pretty young sort of guy and I, <laughs> I looked about five years younger than I was. so... I was flying hornets and looked like I was 13 and, um, and I probably behaved sometimes a little bit like I was 13 as well <laughs> so, so it was, uh, yeah I required that opposite sort of vision right it uh, stuck for a little while there until I, until I became a boss and then people stopped calling me that and they just called me sir
1: instead. Oh, <laughs> awesome
0: so that's interesting Matt you don't get a choice in your surname until you get the rank is it your handle rather they get selected for you.
2: Yeah, it, it's almost, um, it goes in cycles, uh, like uh, over a couple of years. Um, you'll find there'll be a, a couple of years of uh, as pilots will come through where there's no one really nicknaming them, uh, giving them names and you know, everyone will just be you know, abbreviations of their, um, of their you know, surnames or their Christian names, etc. Uh, and then there'll be a wave where um, you know, someone early on in their training will uh, just decide, right, if we're going to name everybody for the next three years. And then you'll have some pretty funny names that'll come through, which typically stick. Um, and, then, uh, and then it'll... it'll, you know, Typically, those people will then get to a position of uh, rank and go, we're not doing that to anyone because it... <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> so it then uh, disappears again for a couple
1: of years. OK.
0: Yeah, no... Oh, hey, Grant, I, I've got one more ref question before we go. Um, I guess you've got a lot of mates still in the ref, obviously, uh, Matt, and um, the, uh, the new Super Hornets are on their way. I guess they're looking forward to doing the conversion across to those
2: yeah, well, I have a, yeah I have a, probably still a majority of my friends are uh, are in the Air Force still, and uh, I have a number of them that are living in uh, California at the moment doing their currently doing or have completed their conversion onto uh, onto the first couple of jets there. and uh, they' they're basically building up their experience um, in in California with uh, with the experienced people around them uh, before they bring the first lot of jets back over to Australia uh, early next year.
0: Are they? Uh, are the F one eleven crews converting over just out of interest? Do you know? Or?
2: They are. Yeah. We're um, we're being we're being quite selective on how we uh, manage the first lot of crews, uh, and we're taking a combination of F one eleven pilots and uh, our Hornet pilots, and uh, converting them onto the, the Super Hornet as the front seaters, and then we're taking uh, you know, basically the majority of the of the F one eleven navigators or. Or uh, weapon systems officers and putting them in the uh, in the back seat of the Super Hornet because it's a two seat aircraft, you know, similar to you know, the top gun side of things. So um, it's uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be crewed very well. And uh, and then once we have done it, or once they have done the initial training, then uh, then they will start taking people straight through from pilot's course uh, as as uh, has been done in history, straight back onto the Super Hornet. So um, it'll uh, it'll develop into a, a fully mature system fairly quickly.
0: Hey, Grant, before we use up all of Matt's time, I guess we'd better start talking about the Red Bull Air Race. Well,
1: I've, I've got a pretty good segue out of the RAF into the Red Bull now. Now, Matt, you've been quoted as saying that flying at 100 feet at 500 knots has made 50 feet at 150 knots seem a lot easier. But did it really help prepare you f- for flying under that chain bridge in Budapest? <laughs> I <haven't>,
2: No. <laughs> I, was actually, I was a little bit concerned about that bridge, Um yeah, you know, it had been, uh, i have been thinking about it for quite, for quite some time. I knew that the bridge, you know, could get down to uh, nine meters clearance. Um, and I spent a lot of time looking at things that were nine meters high, uh, and thinking about, you know, fitting myself through it at 400 kilometers an hour. So, you know, <laughs> as I'd go to, uh, you know, be the, at the, the local swimming pool and look at the, um, the 10 meter board and go, wow, <laughs> that's 10 meters. <laughs> that's higher. Um, and yeah, you know, I'd go to the the local airfield with a big hangar and go. Wow, I was kind of. I guess I could do my training here and fly through the hangar.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so uh, I started. Uh, I started. Yeah, you know, getting concerned. And then when I got to Budapest, um, I went and uh, I, was, I walked up to the bridge. And as I was walking up to it, I was looking at it going. Yeah, it's nice and wide, and it looks like there's plenty of room there. And then I walked across it. And I looked over the edge and. And it really, yeah, uh, you know, it really didn't seem that high when I was standing on it, um, and I knew I've jumped off things that were higher than that.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> how am I going to fit my aircraft through here? So uh, the first couple of passes um, under the bridge, I was um, apparently I was quite low. I was down, uh, my my wheels were about one meter off the uh, off the venue as I went under the bridge because I knew I I knew I can fly low. I, I just didn't know how I'd get under things, so I went for the low flying option. Yeah. and just concentrated on uh, flying as close to the water as I could. And uh, and then, as I discovered, it actually ended up being uh, probably the most relaxing part of the course was uh, going under the bridge. All the other things were um, were uh, foremost in my brain. In fact, I had to remind myself that uh, this is serious because like, uh, now I've just got to fly under the bridge after I went through the last gate. And I had to, at one stage, give myself a bit of a, you know, in one microsecond, give myself a slap across the face uh, mentally to say, it's yeah, that that's still pretty bad that I've got to you now descend and fly under a bridge that's only nine metres off the water all in about two seconds. Wow, <laughs> but it was actually pretty good.
1: Yeah, I've I've watched the videos on YouTube of the preparations out in the fields and where they set up a couple of um, like different altitude, different height barriers to fly under. That if you hit them, it's okay and things like that. So, yeah, pretty intense. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we set up some pylons out at the airfield we were, uh, we were, we were um, basing out of, and they just strung some um, almost like police tape, <laughs> <laughs>
3: some
2: bright yellow tape across the pylons and said, go fly under that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, that was pretty easy, but it's, uh, there's a psychological difference between tape and the steel bridge. <laughs> <laughs> <I knew
0: that. laughs> so, Matt, I was over in Perth last year and went to my first Red Bull event, and I can tell you I'll be going to everyone from now on. It was just sensational. But you did a demonstration flight there. That was last season when you were looking at doing the rookie camp, and you did the demonstration flight around the course. Um, the, you know, Apart from piquing everybody's interest and thinking, oh, wow, there's an Aussie uh, fighter pilot wanting to get into this course, um, you were doing the course just very calmly, very smoothly, even when you were going through the half-cube in there, just talking everybody through it, and this is what I'm doing, and I thought, how cool is this? Yeah,
2: so, um, it, it, uh, what I've found in the race is that uh, it's all about... Just trying to be relaxed. If I, if I can just be relaxed and fly smoothly, uh, then it's easy. And it, and it is actually once you once you get over the shock of the fact that you're flying around at 30 feet and um, and going going between things that are only a little bit wider than the wingspan at um, you know at uh, 200 knots <laughs> and pulling 12g. Yeah. Pull, so once you get all over all those bits, <laughs> it's actually um, it, it, it does become a little bit easier. And uh, it, it's when you actually start to worry about it or, or think about it too much that uh, it becomes harder. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that uh, I'm flying, uh, I've managed to maintain my style, which which military did really uh, um, give me that style of uh, mm. being able to deal with pressure um, and fly very aggressively while flying smoothly, which is what you're
0: doing. I, I wanted to talk to you about your flying style in a moment, but uh, before we touch on that, of course, you're being branded as the rookie pilot, but you're already sitting fifth in the championship. How are they more experienced... Guys on the circuit coping with that. I mean, you're probably more experienced than them before you even came there. I reckon.
2: Yeah, there, there's a little bit of that, and um, yeah, they, they've all been really good actually. There, and they don't, they don't call me a rookie. The uh, in fact, the veterans there, they, uh, they they haven't called me a rookie at all. I've been the one in front of them trying to promote that, saying, "Hey, dudes, I'm just a rookie," you know. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, just, I'm just being lucky to, to beat you every race. <laughs> so uh, so there's, a, there's a little bit of tongue in cheek there, but um, the, they, the, all the other piles have been really good about uh, acknowledging that my my background and training is um, gives me uh, you know, quite quite an advantage coming in, and uh, you know, I think that if I continue to do what I'm doing, we're not too far off you know, securing a podium in the near future, hopefully, So
0: that would be awesome. Are any of the other guys in the circuit? I don't actually know. Are there any other former military pilots uh, in the Red Bull Series?
2: Uh, there's two other former military pilots: uh, Mike Mangold, who's uh, won the championship twice, and there's uh, he flew fighters uh, in the 80s with the USAF. And um, Nigel Lamb um, was in the military in Rhodesia, uh, flying helicopters prior to uh, prior to moving to England uh, to become a professional aerobatic pilot. So uh, there's. There's three of us, whereas but uh, you know Nigel's probably uh, left the military in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, and Mike left in uh, the, the late 80s. So uh, I'm definitely the only you know modern day um, military guy to be flying in the race.
1: I've got a question for you about the dreaded pylons, because uh, you, you you'd said previously that you were uh, interested in experiencing a pylon hit, and you certainly managed that at Windsor. Um, so <laughs> yeah.
2: quite dr- I'm, I'm no longer interested.
1: <laughs> 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 Indeed. So, my my question for you is, from a pilot's perspective, what's it like to suddenly hit a pylon?
2: It depends how you hit it. Um, my first my first few pylon hits were um, just uh, clipping things with wingtips um, while flying straight and level, and that's you get that if you know, that can happen if you're coming out of a very high G turn, for instance, a ten a ten G turn. To roll out and go through a gate, that can get the you still slide as you're rolling out, um, or just completely getting the angle wrong, like happened at the start gate at Windsor, and taking it at a too aggressive an angle. Because obviously, if you take as you take the angle, the, the gap starts to disappear, and you end up with not enough room. Um, if you hit a pylon on um, on a knife edge, it all becomes a, a lot different. And I've hit uh, one pylon on a knife edge, which is where you're rolling to the quadro, and uh, your wings are 90 degrees. And it's typically going to be your bottom wing that hits the pylon because that's where it's fatter and um, and, and coming towards the aircraft. And uh, then so then you've got a tug on the on the bottom wing which wants to pull you down towards the water. So that uh, when you feel that coming, uh, it gets your attention. But I <laughs> haven't had a bad one uh, try and drag you into the water yet. Um, definitely at Windsor, that was probably the most spect- one of the most spectacular hits that the, the race has had this year. And the good side of that is, I'm pretty sure I'm going to feature on the 2009 highlights. <laughs> 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 but um, but uh, the, the thing with that one is, I knew what was coming. So there was no, there was no shock or horror. There was disappointment that I knew that uh, this is going to be a big one and I'm probably going to have to pull out of the track. Um, so all those emotions came up very quickly, but I didn't feel uh, fear or danger. And, uh, and I just went straight through it, you know, hit it with the spinner first, shredded it with the prop, and then blew it over the canopy, uh, all in a, you know, fraction of a second. Um, and it was it uh, it was it was like, yep, here it is, and then just bang, it's gone, and, um, and absolutely no emotion with uh, the pylon hit itself. It was more just a disappointment that I was out of the race.
1: Yeah, you did you did seem to get some, um, some kudos for the fact that you didn't try and dodge it, you just accepted the fact it was coming, leveled, took it the best way you could, and then recovered
2: yeah, and that's, uh, that's one of the things. Um, Steve Jones, uh, who in fact owns the plane, I'm leasing from him this year, <laughs> who is the commentator as well. <laughs> so I think he was like, oh, whoa, damn. <laughs> but, uh, one of the things he said to me is, uh, is that, that uh, you know, the, the pylon hits can become dangerous um, if, you don't, uh, if you don't acknowledge that you're going to hit a pylon. So um, that's exactly what I did. I realised, yep, I'm going to hit the pylon. I could have continued to battle to try and, you know, continue my nightbed roll and try and push past it. Uh, but that would just you know, increase the risk of something going terribly wrong, so it's, uh, just yep, I've screwed up. you gotta, you got to acknowledge your own uh, errors and, and uh, set up and just accept the uh, consequences in a safe way rather than trying to do something that uh, may or may not work and increases the risk. It's already risky enough without actually accepting uh, excessive risk.
0: Getting back to your, you were talking about your style of flying earlier on Matt, um, I noticed when I'm watching the races, there seems to be two distinct styles. There's the, I guess the shambler or I guess the more American style, which seems to me to be very aggressive, uh, you know, very heavy control inputs. Um, it seems to me almost an, an inefficient way to fly. And then you look at someone like Paul Bonham, who is a very, very smooth pilot uh, by comparison. Now, when, uh, the, the one thing that I notice when we're watching you fly the um, the MXS around there. Is it's it's a very very it seems to me to be a very f- smooth flowing style it seems like the energy of each maneuver it just you know really just smoothly pushes around you into the next maneuver it's, uh, it seems to be a very smooth flying style is that a combination of your gliding do you think or or, or the military flying or a bit of both I think
2: it's uh, I think it's a combination of a huge amount um, I think it's uh, gliding because i'm I'm Flying, I'm working with the aircraft I'm, and I know exactly what you're saying when I, I watch um, you know, Kirby and, and, and Mike Gullion and, and Mangold and, um, and Alex, they, they really force the plane around the track. They are muscling yeah. with, uh, with aggression and Hannah does it as well when he, gets, when he starts getting pressure on him in the last race, he'll, he'll start forcing the aircraft uh, whereas you know, I, I really, I try and have a mental attitude that I'm in a partnership with the aircraft and I'm trying to get the most out of the aircraft as efficiently as possible. Uh, and I think uh, Paul does exactly the same way. Um, and it, yeah, it comes from a background of flying low-performance aircraft, um, you know, learning in low-performance aircraft where you have to nurse them into the air and you have to you have to listen to them and feel them. Um, you know, flying ultralights and hang gliders, those sorts of things, you have to feel the aircraft and listen to it. And it also comes from a military background where I'm very aware about, you know, it, when we're dogfighting an in, in F-18, Or or an F-15, you're being extremely aggressive with it. You're taking it right up to its limits in alpha and G and maneuvering. But if you don't do it efficiently, you'll always lose when you're fighting somebody in a similar aircraft. So it has to be done where each control input is for a a purpose of achieving something because wasted control inputs is wasted energy. Combining all that together, I think I end up with my smooth flying style. I definitely think that's, that's the way to end up consistently uh,
1: winning races i'm really enjoying hearing this mate because uh yeah that's that that smooth flow and <laughs> just <laughs> the dreaded b1 with the airplane it's that's great yeah well I, th- yeah. I think efficiency is the word there that's that's probably the word i
0: was searching for as i brought that question up it, it just seems to me that your style of flying is far more efficient than um and makes better use of the energy generated by the the aircraft and the maneuver you're making um than, than the more aggressive they, It seems to me they just seem to wash a lot of the energy off that they or could perhaps use
2: yeah for sure and and uh, the guys that are flying aggressively and still getting uh, results they've got uh, very um, powerful engines you can actually see when they overlay when you overlay the dart fish what they call when uh, the two they put the overlay of two or three planes flying the course simultaneously and uh, they, they do with me quite a bit now because I get getting some results you'll see that uh, when we're maneuvering through the track I'm actually starting to edge away from them. And then we'll get to a straight section going into a half Cuban or something like that, or in a half Cuban, and they'll generally accelerate away from me at that point because they've got the horsepower to, to drag them, you know, to, to put some more knots on. We'll get them back into some manoeuvring area where we're turning and twisting, and and I'll start catching back up to them again because I'm I'm conserving my energy. Um, so I'm hoping that next year we've got a I've, I've got an aircraft being constructed. It'll be my aircraft for next year, um, and we're we're trying to put everything into it because you know I, I really do feel that even though it's only my second year next year, um, you know, if I have the right uh, aircraft, which is not going to be too much different to what I've got now, but I have you know, as much horsepower as I can get out of it. With my flying style and my, my mental attitude towards it, I'm pretty sure we can uh, we can start doing some uh, some pretty serious work towards the championship.
0: Yeah, in the last round in Budapest, uh, Matt, you, you came 5th, I think it was, was it? 7th. Uh, uh, I
2: ended up cu- coming 7th. Um, it, it was probably my most consistent race, to tell you the truth, that... Um, after Windsor, I had a long chat with myself about um, <laughs> attitude and uh, and discipline and efficiencies. Uh, and because in Windsor I just tried too hard and ended up choking. You know, my flying became a little bit more erratic, a little more towards the other guys. And then uh, you know, I hit two pylons in one race, which I considered for myself unacceptable. So at Budapest, I went there with the attitude that uh, I'm going to wind back, not worry about results again, and but fly as cleanly as possible. And for the whole week. Um, I didn't hit any pylons, and I only got one penalty, which actually happened to be on uh, in the Super 8 for a uh, poor knife super
0: edge. I watched you go through that pylon on that knife edge, and I th- when I saw you, I thought, oh, he's- they're going to judge that, I think. <laughs>
2: yeah, I did exactly the same thing. I went through uh, that. that well, what actually happened was I was being so smooth and efficient, uh, and I was having such a great week. Uh, I came around the, the second half Cuban just in front of the chain bridge there, diving back down and as I was going to that, um, that gate I actually had a thought run through my head of on the home straight here and the second half of the course is actually easier than the first half so it's like yep we're into the second half we're on the home straight and I relaxed going through that gate um, and it's still you still can't relax obviously because you're rolling at 500 degrees a second to a knife edge then coming back and pulling 12G to the next gate so uh, I, I relaxed and, um, and as soon as I went through the gate I thought yeah that's, I think that's a penalty uh, so when I came out of the track, i was I was fully expecting to uh, to have been um, booted down the order and uh, and kicked out of the uh, of the uh, of the track. So it, uh, it wasn't surprising to me but, um but the good news is that uh, I know in the day prior, I'd actually come third when I'd actually flown cleanly. and I was on track that day i was I was flying my game plan, and things were looking good that um, yeah I was going to end up uh, you know, doing quite well. So while it it was an error which is disappointing, in the big scheme of things, I was actually quite happy with uh, with how the flying and how the race week went. Uh, for, I was definitely the cleanest pilot for the whole week, so uh, that was my objective, and, uh, and I achieved it.
1: Was um, Budapest the hardest track you've been on so far, the area, not including the Chain Bridge, of course?
2: No, the hardest track for me was actually Windsor. Um, Budapest wasn't actually a technically challenging track, to tell you the truth, because it was. I found it actually quite easy in the angles. Uh, and you can probably see that from my flying style. In fact, if you go to uh, my, my website, Matt Hall Racing, and, and follow it through to my Facebook, we've, po- we've posted some videos there, tail camera videos of the of going under the bridge and flying the track. And you'll see that I can flow through the track there. Whereas if you, you know, in the same website, you can, I've posted video footage of the Windsor track, and that was a much more aggressive track because, uh, you know, while it was still stepping left and right in the river, um... The the gates were at 45 degree angles from each other, whereas Budapest they were only about 30 degrees.
3: So, at okay. winds
2: you had to really do a you had to do about a 60 degree turn one way and then reverse and a 60 degree turn the other way to get through the gate. And uh, that that was uh, quite a challenging track. And then you throw some uh, you throw a 180 degree wind change on race day into <laughs> uh, into that, which effectively ended up being a 30 knot total change in wind direction, with uh, 15 knots one way, or 15 the other. It, uh, it made uh, a, a completely different track that we were all trying to work on race day, and obviously there, were, I think there was four of us were disqualified for, you know, for smashing into pylons uh,
3: uh-huh. on
2: that day. So it, uh, it was that was that was the most challenging track for me, that's for sure.
0: Well, if nothing else, you know, the the pylon crashes they do look spectacular, particularly when you're there watching it live.
2: Yeah, it oh, it, it is a, it is a spectacular sport. Um, yeah. A, if people haven't seen it live uh, and they think they know what it's about by watching on television it is uh, I think it's a, it's a factor of two for excitement and um, and just the, the feeling of it when you're uh, when you're at a live event um, it, it's absolutely incredible as, uh, yeah to, to watch Unfortunately, I don't get to watch them anymore but uh, <laughs> yeah the, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, oh, I can it's,
0: I, it's, I can vouch for that because uh, we were we had grandstand seats and we were right in front of the Brightling gate there and in the in, uh, the aircraft, they, you know, they sort of loiter before they're coming into the course and they'll, they'll sort of dive at the gate to get a bit of speed up. And they, they're initially coming straight at the grandstand and then they sort of cut away in front of you, and it's just absolutely spectacular.
2: Yeah, it's the, it's the closest you can get to notice book is that the whole track's in front of you. You watch the whole thing, you don't have to look at a TV screen to, to find out what's happening on the backside of the track. There's screens up there that have got footage from inside the cockpit that you can see what the pilot's doing inside. Um, but, but it's all there right in your face, and uh, the noises, you know, the, these planes are quite noisy. You know, the TV doesn't represent how noisy these aircraft are. yeah you know, our propellers propellers, are going supersonic when they're in the, in the turn, so they're uh, they're letting out quite a you know shockwaves off the propellers as they're going around. So it's a, it's a very aggressive sport to watch. And um, yeah you know, I don't I'm not sure if it's confirmed yet, but uh, it, it's looking uh, likely there's going to be a race in Australia again next year. And uh, and my my team and I we're currently trying to put together uh, some some group packages or you know, or a, a, a big package deal that people can then go and buy uh, into this package and uh, and then it takes care of their transport their accommodation and they get some behind the scenes tours and uh, get to have dinner a um, you know, big barbecue with me and a couple of the race pilots and things like that just to, <laughs> to get people to uh, to come to the race and and just really experience how exciting this whole thing is.
0: Are you writing this down, Grant? Make sure we're on, make sure we're on that too. Oh, I'm too busy drooling, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you, the other thing uh, that's that's uh, equally uh, interesting to watch is the uh, Jörg the helicopter pilot, <laughs> following the aircraft around. And, and that's just he's a very very skilled pilot in his own right.
2: He is. He, he's a great guy. He's, uh, he's super relaxed. He just sits there in the brief and just takes it all in, and then. He'll get up and tell us, yeah, I'll be flying uh, up and down here, and I'll uh, I'll miss you, don't worry. And and to tell you the truth, I never see him. And I'll watch a video of, of me racing, and I in the video I'll see Jurg flying around behind me and above me and below me, and I'm just zipping zipping past him, and I don't even notice him when I'm flying the track. And um, yes, yeah, we've done some formation approaches to landing where he's got his rotor blade is, is um is overlapping over over my aircraft flying sideways filming me as i'm coming down final to land it's a it's just impressive to watch it's a very impressive pilot that's for sure
1: wow do we dare do we dare ask the question because uh, you've you've flown the f-18 the f-15 you've flown lots of light aircraft you've got your aerobatics aircraft you've got a p-51 for which i'm obscenely jealous mate <laughs> is it safe to ask what's your favorite aircraft
2: not really because uh <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't really have a favorite. It depends on what mood I'm in and, and what I'm trying to achieve. If if I'm going to uh, you know to go race an aircraft, uh, my MXS is, uh, is my favorite. If I'm going to if I'm going to uh, you know just go and putt around, I love going in a J3 Cub. Or if I'm flying an airship, I probably prefer the P fifty one Mustang just because of the, the sound and environment. But then again, I can't you know I can't not fly my Giles and go and do some tumbles uh, end over end in front of the cr- crowd. It's Pretty cool as well. So. And as I said earlier on, I'd go and get in the glider and go on an adventure for a day on the weekend is uh, is a, a pretty romantic way to uh, spend a day with aviation. So yeah, got me. <laughs> I don't have a favorite.
1: <laughs> no, that's, that is an honest answer. I, I'm happy with that because I, I've got to say, I mean, not that I've got a lot of experience flying, I've done gliding, I'm, I'm working on balloons. I, I crew balloons here in Melbourne as well as my day job. And um yeah, look, there's that. There's a Cessna I've been, and I've been in a lot of different aircraft. And, yeah, horses for courses, you, you have a – your. some people say my favorite aircraft is the one I'm flying right now, and others yeah. say, like, you, you know, it, it depends on what the mission is.
2: Yep, exactly. And, uh, you yeah, know, I, I would hate to be in my race plane if I was trying to go supersonic. <laughs> if I wanted to go supersonic, you yeah, I know which one yeah. I'd rather be in.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's not many can say that, uh, Matt. Uh, when are you planning to be back uh, down under next?
2: Um, I'm over here until uh, the uh, finish the season, which um, I think I land back in Australia on the 8th of October. So um, it's the back okay. home then and, and uh, then it's just going to be um, a couple of trips to America to see out the rest of the year to make sure that a new race plane is um, is going the way I want it to, and and really just uh, getting organised for the next season.
1: Okay. Do you have any plans to do air shows down under so we can all come and say hi and see you?
2: Yeah, I'm actually doing um, I'm doing a show um, in Victoria in uh, early December. I think it's the first weekend of December. Called Show Us Your Wheels. It's a uh, it's a car and it's a it's a racing sort of drag sort of show and uh, and I'm I'm going to doing a display there. It's just near Shepparton, so um, we'll.
0: Up at perhaps. So.
2: Yeah, um, it's just it's not quite there. Um, I can't even tell the exact place. So it's pretty bad, isn't it? But. Uh, um, we'll have the details on our website uh, as, we, as we get a bit closer on uh, exactly where it is and, and what we're doing there. And um, yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be I'll be at the event after I fly. So uh, if people want to come and say good day, that uh, feel free. I'm um, I, I try and consider myself to be a fairly friendly and um, and down to earth sort of guy. So uh, um, yeah, come around and say good day or just uh, follow the progress on the website and uh, you can see what we're doing, when we're doing it, and and how we're doing and um, and. Yeah, if uh, there's an opportunity to catch up, take it.
1: Oh yeah, definitely would love to love to come and say hi and say thanks in person.
0: Perfect. Do you, is there a, apart from you talked about you've got a, your presence on Facebook and your website? Do they have like a Matt Hall fan club at the moment or anything like that, or maybe we should start one right now? Uh,
2: we've got a we've got a Matt Hall fan club on Facebook. So uh, basically, um, if you uh, if you um, Matt Hall racing and uh, jump on that, we've. In fact, we're trying to get to be the first race pilot to get to a thousand fans. We're currently about just cracked 950, I think. So uh, we're ahead of all the other race pilots, I believe. So um, jump on that and sign up and take us to a thousand. And just
3: uh, yeah, very just cool. Looked,
2: uh, good banner to have uh, the, the Aussie, the rookie, yeah, you know, first year and uh, crack the thousand where none of our other veterans have done it yet. So. Uh, on that in a thousand actually is quite a disappointing number. Really, I'd be hoping to be ten thousand by
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd be happy to have a thousand listeners to our podcast at this stage. Um, <laughs> we're almost there. Uh, we should also we should also mention Matt that you're also on Twitter as uh, Matt Hall Racing.
2: That's right. So I got Twitter as well, and um, and at the moment uh, it, it's, it's a little bit slower than I was hoping, and uh, but we're uh, we're working on. Um, my it really comes down to my technology. <laughs> so uh, after this season, I'm going on a, a crash course of how to uh, improve my uh, my online image and uh, and get a little bit more personal with the fans. Um, just you know just to keep people interested because um, I keep stepping back away from myself and looking at what I'm doing and go bloody hell that's pretty cool. <laughs> so yeah. I need I need to make sure that I can um, you know I can keep people involved and uh, and interested. Uh, um, yep. And yeah, just just have people uh, have people enjoy what I'm able to uh, be lucky enough to be doing.
1: Yeah, you know, I well met. We I, I also do um, an online presence for the uh, for a 737 simulator company here, the Flight Experience Melbourne group, and uh, yeah, yeah. Try, uh, working with them and a, and a few other groups to help improve their presence and uh, keep everyone excited.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got some professional people working uh, with me at the end of this year to to improve that side of things because, yeah, in the end, what it comes down to is I'm just a pilot who's learning to, uh, to be this uh, athlete. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, get the, get the professionals on side and that'll really help. It's a good move. Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, Matt, and of course you've uh, you've, you've, you've received decorations from your time in the US and uh, in your Air Force career in Australia, but we'd like to also award you the much-coveted Friend of the Podcast Award, which gets you <laughs> our... <laughs> Our undying
1: gratitude and admiration. I
2: wear it on my chest with pride.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Friend of PCDU, it's not- notorious, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, there you go.
2: <laughs> I, I'm, I'm one of the few so far.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you, you are. You, you it, might be the only one. You are the first.
2: I so am uh, the first, there yet, yeah, but I'm sure it will be a large group in the future.
1: We're working yeah. on that. Matt, Matt, before we wind this up, is there anything else you'd like to say? Uh, we've, we've grilled you a bit on the on the military, we've grilled you on general flying and Red Bull, is there anything else you'd like to say while we've got you here?
2: Um, really it's just about, uh, what I try, I've done a few uh, talks at schools and things and it's just ready to really push the point where um, I, I try and tell people that I'm, uh, I'm a normal guy, I went to went to a public school, um, put my mind to a dream, you know, had a lot of people tell me that uh, you know, how could I be a pilot, uh, why would I be a pilot, that's not where your future is, but I chased it and um, and, you know, things things do, you know, come along to people who are chasing their dreams. You know, I always read books about, you know, saying just do what you love and, uh, it, and it'll work out. And I had a lot of times in my life where I was going, I don't know how this is going to work out. <laughs> but, um, but, but it really it really has for me. So uh, I guess uh, the message I like to try and pass to anyone from a uh, one-year-old through to a to hundred is uh, it's never too late to try and uh, chase a dream. So, um yeah, if people can, if everyone in the, in the world lived like that, I think it'd be a pretty nice
0: place. Excellent. Well, that certainly motivates me to get get back out there down to Maraboon and get current again. That's for sure. Yeah. Not that I needed much motivation, but uh, you know that really just <laughs> you know emphasises the point, really, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, Matt, um, we've uh, we we were we we're hoping to get half an hour from you, and we've uh, see we've just clicked over to an hour, so we really should let you go.
1: Perfect. Not a problem at all. Mate, it's been excellent. I really, really appreciate the fact you've taken the time to have a chat with us. Uh, we've we've been rapt to have this opportunity and uh, be sure we'll be following your career and this season and onwards. Uh, it's been great. Thank you very much
0: been my pleasure. Thank you
1: for having me. Cheers, Matt. All the best.
0: And that's where the main interview ended. But just before we hung up with Matt, there was one more small piece we wanted to play. We just got off talking about what Grant and I think about the state of general aviation and what we're trying to do with our podcast here in promoting Australian aviation. And Matt just shared a, a couple of really interesting points, which, uh, with his permission, we're just going to play just before we end things off. I found it really, really interesting, and I hope you do too. What we're just trying to do with this podcast is just sort of, you know, raise the profile of, of Australian aviation. I, I, I can't find any other Aussie uh, aviation podcasts around. There's, there's plenty of American ones, so that's what yeah. we're just trying to do. Uh, we've got quite a number of American listeners. Okay. But, that's um, a great idea.
2: Like, uh, it, it's actually, I think aviation is such a, a fantastic thing, and, yeah, uh, you know, it, it's a family sport. It's a motivator for kids, um, and it, it does need more exposure to, um, you yeah, know, for... The general public understand that it's not a, it's not an exclusive thing for rich and wealthy people. It's actually a lifestyle thing for uh, the average person.
0: Yeah, that's certainly the perception. That, you know, it's really treated here as an elitist thing. That's that's a real difference I reckon in the mindset between here and the states. I do most yeah. of my flying training in the states, so um, yeah. I've had a lot of, exp- you know, in the states, people don't see it as so elitist. I reckon. So no, it's just, that's just yeah. my people personal thing.
2: Plane. Yeah, well, definitely yeah. In, in the states, everyone, yeah, everyone can own a plane. So, uh, mm. in fact, I bought a plane when I was living there for thirty thousand dollars—a you know, a two-seat um, biplane. I was a classic biplane to do aerobatics in for thirty grand. And the problem with Australia is you can't do that. You'd have to spend hundred grand in Australia to trade the Oh it. yeah. Gosh, yeah. So be anyway, it's a, a good job trying to promote it and um, you know, keep everyone uh, get everyone on board. I think that's fantastic.
1: Well, that was a great interview. I really enjoyed that. Um, I, I think uh, that Matt. Gave us some answers there that I've definitely not heard or read in any other interview with him so far. I got the feeling that uh, we were hearing some really good stuff there about uh, what it's like to fly with the military and in Red Bull. That was, that was great.
0: And, and the guy's so humble and just so laid back, isn't he? It's certainly not what I expected from uh, someone with his flying experience. And uh, he's, uh, he's obviously at the top of his game and has been for a long time. Uh, in fact, he was almost at pains to point out, I thought, that, you know, I'm just an ordinary bloke with, with an extraordinary skill.
1: Yeah, no, it was really good. It's, it's. I think he's living proof of what what you can do if you uh, you apply yourself, set your goals, and and push through. It's it's great, and stay focused.
0: So folks get out there and follow him he is uh, representing well he's represented Australia with distinction in the in, during his uh, Air Force career and now he's out there having a ball and representing us on the Red Bull Air Race circuit and uh, to be honest with you the way he flies it won't be long before he's right up there at the very very top I'm, I'm just absolutely positive about that uh, it's matthallracing.com he's Matt Hall Racing on Twitter he's got a fan page on Facebook so uh, sign up there and show the guy you support he's really he sounds really impressed that uh, so many of us are following him and we just need to make sure that he knows how much we're supporting him
1: yeah and I for one I'm definitely going to start saving to try and get over to uh, Perth for the next Red Bull I believe it's going to be in April uh, that uh, the, the word on the street is that next year Red Bulls coming back to Australia and will be in Perth uh, around April area and uh, yeah uh, that package concept he was talking about
0: excellent and as you heard me say through that interview I attended the Red Bull Air race in Perth uh, in November
1: 2000
0: <laughs> and um, that it really was a really fantastic experience if you're into aviation on any level um, you can't help but be impressed uh, you're right up there you're right close to the action and uh, so I really encourage you folks if you're um, you're able to get across to Perth in April if that's when they're going to hold the next race then I'd really encourage you to uh, get over there and do it and uh, for those of our international listeners um, you know obviously the Red Bull Air Race goes right around the world uh, get down and have a look at it it's, it's a really fantastic experience
1: definitely definitely it sounds like it's worth the go and I've been gnashing my teeth that I've missed the last few here in Australia. That's just always been bad timing.
0: Hey, Grant, we almost could call this episode Plugcast number two.
1: (laughs) I I, I think the title that we've got for it is pretty good. Matt Hall, we're so not worthy. I'm just on an absolute high. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was awesome. So hope you enjoyed this episode, folks. Uh, We'll be back to our normal format with the next one. And uh, we do have a couple of other interviews uh, ready to go that we'll just work into the other episodes. We've got a few more people lined up to do new interviews and a couple of uh, potential roundtable discussions coming up lots of content in the near future but uh for now really i hope you've enjoyed this one because we certainly have
0: yeah we've been looking at some news articles uh that we're going to put in our next episode but uh to be honest with you folks i'm just far too excited and uh, i'm still buzzing from that interview so until the next episode i'm steve fisher
1: and i'm grant mccarran and remember folks it's what's down under that counts